Hello, listeners, and welcome to today's episode of The Dreaded Question. I'm your host, Lily Torre, and this week's guest is Caitlin Fahey. You may have heard about Caitlin a few weeks ago on Tara Tagliaferro's episode of TDQ. Tara mentioned that she utilized Caitlin's amazing dramaturgy service, Go Beyond the Script, to help her prepare for how to succeed. I knew that Caitlin would make an amazing guest on TDQ because of her passion for her parallel career and because she has some seriously amazing perspective because of her unique experience going from artist to lawyer to artist slash dramaturg. So without further ado, let's find out what Caitlin Fahey is up to. So Caitlin Fahey, what are you up to? I am so glad that you asked that. (gasps) That's so nice to hear. Because two years ago... I would have had a completely different answer. Yeah. So it is fun to chart growth in that way. In my lawyer days, I would have had a very snarky response. Oh, you know, live in the dream, even though that was a lie. Right, right, right. Or I would have just completely unloaded on the other person of, oh my God, it's crazy. I build, you know, X amount of hours this week and blah, 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 blah. And we would just have, you know, superficial conversations that at the end of the day didn't really mean anything because I shouldn't be valuing my life in terms of how many hours I build that week. Right. So today I am really focused not on what I'm up to, but why I am doing the things that I am doing. Yes. I know we're both big fans of Becca Brunel, friend of the TDQ podcast. Yes. She helped me find my why, which is something that Simon Sinek has started. And once I had that, so many other things began to make sense. And I realized that in the past, I was really attached to my what and, and the label And what that meant to other people, what that meant to me, to be out in the world saying, I'm a lawyer, that's that's my what. And then when I left the practice of law to return to a creative life, I had the freedom to live labelless for a while. Ooh. And it was it was a process. And as As people in the creative world know, process is often messy, Mm -hmm. but I had to go through all of those things and all of the steps in order to confidently say today, it's not what I do that matters. It's why I do it. Yes. Uh, I love this point so much that I really do believe that part of the reason we feel the dread behind the dreaded question is because, yeah, it's what focused, what are you up to? And I really love that you brought up, you know, starting with why coming from a why aligned place is so much more fulfilling to talk about, so much more interesting to talk about. But two things that came up for me in everything that you just said One is something that I've been thinking about recently is while the dreaded question is what focused, even when people say, how are you? A lot of people will be like, oh yeah, you know, like I'm so busy or like, I'm fine. I'm living the dream or, you know, whatever. But 
how infrequently we actually take a second to check in with what we are feeling and actually answer with an emotional or feeling response. So how infrequently we say, how am I? Um, I'm feeling kind of overwhelmed or I'm feeling kind of sad today or today I'm feeling like really happy and upbeat. Thanks for asking. You know, we so rarely answer with those emotional responses and typically almost pivot it into something more what focused, like I'm so busy, which I think is fascinating. Even as actors and as artists, we still avoid the emotional response. Yes. I find it fascinating that as actors, people are trained to get in touch with their emotional responses, but then don't necessarily carry that into their whole human life. And wouldn't the world be a better place if we all were better in touch with our emotions and could speak about things not from, you know, not from a place of shame, not from a place of, oh, I'm bothering somebody if I state my truth or overwhelming another person, but just, you know, setting in and letting ourselves sit in the sandbox. And as we sit in that sandbox, you know, figure out the path forward. Yes. I feel like there has to be room for both. We have to be able to be in touch with our emotions and sit in them and also still be able to take actions. Yes. I believe uh, Ari Axelrod and I unpacked this a little bit in his episode that, you know, emotions are data. It's information that's available to you about yourself and to completely ignore it because you feel it's inappropriate for whatever reason is a complete missed opportunity to capitalize and utilize some really informative, really important data, which I I think people feel some resistance towards thinking that way because it seems so scientific and cold compared to something as like human as emotion. But I I think it's it's important. A hundred percent. And I love the concept of looking at things from a data perspective, particularly now I was... I just wrote one of my blog posts for Go Beyond the Script this week was about archives. And I've been having a lot of conversations with a friend about the importance of personal archives. Mm -hmm. And I know that a lot of artists right now are feeling pressure to create and sort of feeling overwhelmed. And my response to that was, you can create without sharing. Like if, if what's holding you back is like pushing send and like sending it out into the universe on social media or whatever, Mm -hmm. it is enough. And it is important to have a personal archive for yourself Yeah, and to sit in whatever is going on that day and respond to that creatively. And I decided personally that I was going to do that and post it publicly for my community. Uh, I've been doing a little daily video project, which is just me sitting on my couch with my dog. You love that so much. Yeah. Your songs and self-quarantine series. Yeah. And it's so funny. Sometimes I plan it out and I have an idea of what I'm going to do that day. And other times, yesterday I got to the end of the day and I was like, man, it's been a long day. I'm pretty tired. I'm not I didn't really have a a song idea in mind. And I was just like, well, I should just say goodnight. So I just, you know, popped on my my favorite 
Ella Fitzgerald, she's always a go-to for me in these times. Of course. And, and, and sang a goodnight song. And that, that's what I had to say that day. And now when I look back, when this is over, you know, that will be my, my personal archive record of that's how I was feeling that day. I love this idea of curating an archive and that it can be in a variety of mediums. I mean, you have chosen to sing and to video record it and share it on Facebook, but I mean that you can do that for one day as well. And the next day you could make a painting or you could write a journal entry or you could do a dance. You can do any number of things, but I love the idea of having this personal archive of what your journey and experience was like at the end of this. And again, without ever needing to feel the pressure to share it. If someone is like, I don't want to share a singing video on Facebook, don't, but you can record it on your phone for yourself and have that in your archives. I think that's a really, a really great way to sort of reframe the idea of creating. Yeah. And I think it also builds off of not everything that, that people I love that they created saw the light of day you know Mm -hmm. we find cut songs from shows all the time or or snippets of of things or you know stuff that Stephen Sondheim wrote during college simply to build the skill of doing what they want to do in the medium that they want to create in so I think that's also an important thing about archives for me is it's not just about the things that are worthy of being shared with the world. It's doing it for yourself so that you get to the point where you have something possibly to share with the world. Absolutely. And, you know, I love that you phrase it or you, the way that you look at this is as an archive because it's so perfectly in alignment with who you are and what you do. And the business that you've created with Go Beyond the Script. And I definitely want to dive into that. And I definitely want to talk more about Go Beyond the Script. But I want to kind of go back to the beginning and tell the story about how you got to Go Beyond the Script. Oh, gosh, lots of twists and turns. For context, because that's what I do. I, at a very young age, was on an artistic creative Uh, career path. And I found myself at music conservatory my freshman year. I thought I was going to be an opera singer, was surrounded by all of these gorgeous voices, and I was miserable. Mm -hmm. I, I truly was not happy. Singing was no longer enjoyable. I was far from home for the first time in my life and, and having struggles with that. So in addition to all the things that people deal with when they are freshmen in college. So I made the decision uh, at a very early age, well, if I'm unhappy, I I have to do something about that. Yeah. And I ended up transferring schools. I decided I wanted a liberal arts education, that I wanted to be back in New England. And I really wanted to continue what I had already been doing before college, which was to hold space for both. I wanted to keep doing my music and also you know, learn about other things as well. And in that period in my life, I was a huge fan of the West Wing. I took a class. I, I went to the Cleveland Institute of Music that is associated with Case Western Reserve University. So I was able to take my academic classes at Case Western, and I took a comparative politics class 
And I was like, this is fascinating. Like, I want to know how other governments work or, you know, how, how ours work versus theirs, you know, what other systems are there. And I showed up at Wheaton College in Norton, Massachusetts as a sophomore, as a political science major, while still being welcomed into the artistic community there. Like, my political science advisor knew that music was very important. You know, she always made sure I was making space for that in my class schedule. Everybody involved in the music department, I took my voice lessons, I was in choir, I was in chamber singers, you know, etc. It was really a place where they were focused on educating the whole person. Yes. And not just, you know, the sliver of skill set that you think you're going to use in, in your chosen career. At Wheaton, I met a professor who introduced me to the idea of going to law school, which I had never thought about. I mean, I kind of had like a fantasy reading John Grisham novels when I was younger, but like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. And he encouraged me to really, really think about it. I graduated and I was working in, in government uh, in Massachusetts. At the time, a lot of people in government have a law degree, but don't necessarily practice. And I was like, oh, I should go do this to get these skills that I need, you know, to get the analytical skills, the research skills, the writing skills, and maybe I'll practice, maybe I won't. And I went to the University of Connecticut School of Law and had three years there, uh, and then actually ended up at a firm, which is not something, again, not something I thought I was going to do. Wow. But I, I was a litigator because everybody in law school was like, oh, well, being a litigator is like being in a play and like there's a script and like you have to improvise and you have to think on your feet. And again, I had like the fantasy of at that point being Juliana Margulies. Of course. <laughs> With all of her outfits as well, by the way. Oh, like, please. And wigs. <laughs> I mean, come on. I was like, yes, I want to be strutting into court with my Chanel jacket. We all do. <laughs> and of course, fantasy life is very different from reality life. I am yeah. grateful for the time uh, that I spent there, but ultimately I wasn't doing things that I wanted to be doing. And it was during that period where music was not really a part of my life, which was sad because in law school, I was still able to keep up with my voice lessons. I did community theater. Right. You know, I found ways to keep it alive. And, you know, that first year at a firm is just all consuming. There were five of us in my class together and we would get together and be like, what is going on? What is our lives? How are we, how are we handling this? And so after that first year, when I was finally settled in the litigation department, I was like, I need to make space for music again. Like this is something that is important to me. It's something that keeps me grounded, keeps me sane. I got to figure out a way to make this work. And what I found was cabaret, wow. which again, was nothing, nothing I ever thought that I would do. I didn't even really know what it was. I mean, I knew like people saying in clubs, but right. I didn't understand the concept of like, oh, no, it's like a structured show and um, there are different types of songs and et cetera. But I took a workshop up in Boston. I really was, was welcomed there with, with open arms. And what I loved about it at the time was it was on my schedule on my terms. Yeah. And I got to choose everything that I wanted to do. Yeah. Which is so brilliant about cabaret. It really is like 
the ability to have a dress custom tailored to fit your body. Uh, Yes, I love that analogy. It's so much like that. Because you're working with arrangements. You know, you want to sing a song and it's too high for you, change the key. You want to sing a song that, you know, was done by a male singer, you know, again, maybe change the key if you have to or not and and sing the song. Yeah. There are no rules. I mean, there are, but right. they are they are flexible and I'm always a fan of breaking rules assuming you know them in the first place. <laughs> Very important. Yes, distinction. <laughs> And it was through a combination of working at my firm in Boston and mostly working on New York cases and having this cabaret thing going on and knowing that New York was sort of the epicenter of cabaret and that if I wanted to keep keep going, this is where I needed to be, that in 2015, I picked up and moved to New York, which was like a little scary at first it took me a really long time to make the decision until finally one of my friends was like, you just need to go to New York for a weekend yes, and imagine yourself living there and see what it feels like. And so I was like, okay, I can do this. And then I completely lied to everyone about going. I told all my cabaret people, hey, I'm going to be in New York for, for work stuff, like would love to you know, catch up, come take a class. And then I told all my work people, oh, I'm just going to go down, you know, for the weekend and see some shows and, you know, have a little me trip. Wow. Why? Because I, I felt like it was, you know, saying it out loud to people um, made it seem seem real. Yeah. I kind of didn't want anybody else's opinion about the decision. I kind of wanted to make the decision and just say, hey, this is what I'm doing. Totally. So literally only one person knew my good friend who had very good advice, who said, stop, stop debating in your head and just go do it. Yeah. I had a magical weekend. It was May. It was springtime, like the, the best part of New York City. Uh, and I was on the High Line looking out onto the river and I saw the Statue of Liberty and I got teary and like irate at the same time, uh, <laughs> which, you know, mixed, mixed emotions. But I was thinking about my great grandmother who left Ireland to come to New York, you know, basically with $3 in her, in her right. pocket. And like uh, the, the audacity of making that, that trip back then and what that meant so that all of the generations of my family, you know, ended up where they are. And I was kind of irate at myself because I was like, you are, you know, worried about moving 200 miles away. (laughs) And she moved across an entire ocean. So like, get over yourself. This isn't that big of a decision. And Boston isn't going anywhere. Right. That is true. If you want to move back, you can move back. That's such a like historian dramaturgical way of thinking about it too. I love that, that you're like, my ancestors, like the history of all of it. I mean, I always find answers in the past to future issues. Yeah. It's just the way my brain works. And so, you know, I was here, I was doing the cabaret thing and the lawyer thing. And so I got to the point in the city where I was like, hey, I'm liking this this creative life a lot more than I'm liking my lawyer life. 
maybe it's time for a change. At that point, I already left my my firm and was back working in government, um, this time for the city. And I decided to make a nine-month plan to quit my job and pursue musical theater and cabaret. Wow. And I started taking classes and, you know, was trying to figure out next steps and thought I had it like all under control. Like, I know what I'm going to do. You know, I know I need to brush up on some skill sets. So I left my job at the city on a Friday. And that Wednesday, I showed up at JWS for my first class. What brought you to JWS? I had a cabaret friend who knew that I was leaving law and wanted to do more musical theater. And she emailed me out of the blue and said, you have to go to this place. Wow. Yes. It's, I mean, talk about a gratitude letter I need to send because yeah. <laughs> Truly. It, it rocked my entire world, my entire mindset. I became pretty much a studio junkie for um, a, good, a good year. And because of the studio, that's how Go Beyond the Script was born. I was in the summer program that Jen does uh, called Reboot. And I was, you know, obsessively trying to put together my audition book, even though I was kind of like, I'm not as excited about some of these things as I thought I was going to be. Or the things that I'm excited about aren't necessarily the things that are being produced. So right. there's kind of less opportunity here than I thought. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've got to do some noodling on that because that's problematic for me. Right. Because I had some firm boundaries about what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do. And one of the things that I wasn't interested in doing was being in shows that I didn't feel connected to yeah. or shows where I would have to work extremely hard to use a different part of my voice that I don't really like to live in. Like, Mm. I don't really live in the pop rock world. And some people do, and it's amazing. And I want to go see the show, but I don't want to be in it. Right. And that shows a lot of integrity to say, you know, this happens to me a lot too with Mamma Mia, everyone's about to roll their eyes who's listening to this because Mamma Mia is actually a show that I really love and really enjoy. I know it's crazy. I have really strong thoughts on the show that we can discuss privately, but it breaks my heart when I go to a Mamma Mia audition and I end up in final callbacks with two other girls who sit there talking about how much they hate Mamma Mia. And I always want to turn to them and be like, then why are you here? Yes. Why are we showing up for things that we don't actually care about? Right. Why was there a, you know, line around multiple blocks for, you know, a call of a show that I guarantee you most people didn't really care about the show. Right. And I think, I don't know if I would call it integrity of myself. I I think it's more Mm self-awareness. In my vocabulary of like, I know what I want to do and I know what I don't want to do. And knowing that gives me so much more freedom because it's so much easier to say no. Right. You know, when when I was still kind of like, ooh, you know, maybe musical theater, I would sort of look at the listings and I would say, nope, 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 not for me. No. 
because otherwise the cost is too high, particularly as, you know, at, in my case, I still am, although it doesn't really matter to me, you know, a non-union female. Right. I don't have time to wait around all day. And then the alternative is, you know, reaching out and, you know, putting yourself on tape and et cetera. And if you really want the role, if you believe that, you know, you're the right person, I say 100% go for it. But for me personally, the cost was too high for the the potential outcome. I was like, ooh, I could take all of these resources, the time, the money, the energy, and put it into something that I actually care about. Yes. And and I think that is one of the many, 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 many powers of a parallel career is it gives you that freedom because your alternative isn't a job you hate or some, you know, some sort of survival job. The alternative is this other thing that I also love doing that also fuels and fulfills me so that you don't feel like you have to go to everything or you have to take every job because, again, you can be doing something else that brings you joy which I know you also subscribe to because you created a parallel career for yourself with Go Beyond the Script. I did. I had a thought um, while I was doing some research that this is something people in the musical theater world need. Like I don't really hear a lot of people talk about some of this stuff that I'm interested in. Uh, For example... I had a song in my book from Do I Hear a Waltz, which is, you know, Stephen Sondheim, Richard Rogers. Well, it's based on this play called The Time of the Cuckoo, also by Arthur Lawrence, who wrote the book for Do I Hear a Waltz. I want to read that play. I want to know, you know, what the creators had as their source material in order to make their decisions. Right. What was inspiring them that made this other thing come to be? I want to know, I actually was taught this at a very, very early age. My voice teacher and piano teacher growing up, I lived in a very small town, was also the middle school choir teacher. And we did a production of South Pacific when I was in seventh grade. And I got to play Nellie, which was like dreams. Uh, (laughs) And Nellie has a song in the show called A Wonderful Guy. And she says, I'm bromidic and bright. Or what is it? I'm bromidic and bright as a moon happy night pouring light on the dew. Anyway, she says the word bromidic and she calls herself that. And so Sally Riblet, my teacher, turned to me in my voice lesson. She said, okay, can you tell me what bromidic means? No. I have no idea. Seventh grade. It's not not in the seventh grade (laughs) vocabulary. She said, okay, well, we're not going to sing this song today. You go home, and this this week you look it up, and uh, when you come back uh, next week, we'll talk about what the word means, and then we can sing the song. Okay, you know, I was like, <laughs> I just want to sing the song. I don't care what the word means. Why, why does it matter? And this went on for a good like three weeks, where I just wow. like dug my heels in and didn't look it up. And to her credit, she did not let me sing that song. Wow. And I finally like. I don't know what what broke me, but I finally looked it up and then brought it brought it into her, and then we were allowed to sing. Good for her. And that I know. I mean, can you imagine <laughs> this bratty little kid just look it up? 
that stuck with me. Yeah. And between that and, and the carryover of my opera training of, you know, a lot of that stuff is in foreign languages. Rule right. number one, look it up. You've got to know what you're singing. Yeah. <laughs> and I just felt like there was a way to take my love of that research, of that analysis and sort of use my my lawyer brain and fuse it with my love of musical theater to help yeah. other people create. And my my why is to create context so that others can tell more compelling stories. Yes. Oh my gosh, that's so perfect. It just like fit hand in glove. And I've been really lucky and fascinated to find that I love doing it for other people. You know, yeah. I, I think there's this fear as performers that if you step away from performing and maybe uh, decide to help others that you will miss it yourself or yeah. you'll be like, oh, I, you know, I want to be the one doing it. Right. And I, I really don't. I, you know, I have my own thing going on um, performing wise. I know what my goals are there and, and what I like to do. And then I get to sit with these incredible artists and come up with plans to help them bring about their most creative self, whether it's, you know, helping them research and and put together a cabaret, uh, whether it's helping them, you know, dramaturg a character uh, that they're playing in a production for, I mean, a lot of regional theater companies don't have dramaturgs on staff. Nope. And if they do have literary people, a lot of their time is being spent in the script development process, which is 100% important. Um, I'm I'm all on board for dramaturgs um, in script development. But I wanted to offer something on the production side that really sparked people's curiosity to get more creative, to have a full understanding of where all of this came from so that they can make informed choices in their work. Yes. Like it's such an important piece of the puzzle. And like, I don't know why this is the first example that comes to mind, but I, I, it always occurs to me as an example when, when talking about like doing your homework as an actor, Mm -hmm. I always think of, I cannot believe I am blanking on his name right now. The second actor who played Dumbledore in the Harry Potter movies. Oh, Michael Gambon. Yes. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. He famously did not read the books because he felt that his text that he was pulling from was the screenplay. And therefore, the example that is always floating around the internet is in Goblet of Fire, there is a line that says something to the effect of, Harry, did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? And... It, it says Dumbledore said calmly and then it cuts to in the movie. He's like screaming it like, did you put your name? Because that's how he interpreted when there was no Dumbledore said calmly when it was written as a screenplay. And overall, his portrayal of the character has received a lot of criticism for being a bit too fiery for the Dumbledore that we had all imagined when reading the books. So to me, I always think of that as an example of why did he throw away this gift that he was given 
you have this whole beautiful treasure trove of context and backstory and things that just for time's sake didn't make it into the movie that you could have read and treasured like many slash most slash probably all of the other actors in the movies. And I just think that that's such a clear example of someone who missed such an opportunity to like really go deeper like that. That's so fascinating. I actually did not know that story, but that resonates so much with my practice and what I believe in. And I think people have a fear that it'll be like, oh, I'm stealing or um, you know, if they're oh. if they're doing a role that someone else has famously done, oh, I don't want to watch that mm. because I don't want to do the same thing that they right. did. And my response to that is everybody steals. You just have to figure out a way to do it with integrity. Yeah. Uh, and my favorite book on that is literally called Steal Like an Artist. I love that book. It's so good. It is so good. I use it all the time because the point isn't to take you know one person's interpretation and try to to mimic it it's to take information in from multiple different sources and come up with your your own having been inspired what other people have done before you and to know what other people have done before you so that when you do make a choice that is different from the past that you know, you can justify it, that you're not just making a different choice because you don't want to be compared to the other person. Right. You know, because there are some things, you know, especially when we do revivals, there are some moments we want to see. Yes. And it'll be, it'll be different just by virtue of it being a different actor, but please don't rob us of that moment just because you don't want to, you know, be you know, accused of, of copying. There are, I promise you, Leonard Bernstein has a quote about stealing that is escaping me right now. Hey listeners, Lily here. The quote Caitlin was referring to was, part of the artifice of art is knowing how to steal classy. But if you look at the score from West Side Story, he stole from all different types of music. Right. You know, and the, the brilliance of it is... He stole from multiple different sources and then put it together in a way that only he could do. Exactly. That's how you steal. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I love doing. I know you had um, my, my dear friend Tara Tag. Yes. On the podcast earlier, the work we did with Smitty for her was hysterical. I mean just going back to that time period and gathering as much information and sources as possible. For example, Smitty's first line in the show, she enters and is complaining to Rosemary that Rosemary pulled her away when she hadn't finished her Metrical, which was this like super gross diet drink in the 1950s and 60s. It was like the first version of it was the slim fast of, of the 1960s. And the show was written in, in 1961. It was a contemporary comedy of the time. So obviously that audience would have known and, and recognized that. So what we did is we went back and we actually found on YouTube all of the advertisements for it cool. and all of like the, 
the clippings of like the different tastes. We Tara decided like what flavor she was drinking. I love that. That's so cool. And giving somebody, you know, that rich information so that that um, that thing that is mentioned is actually something tangible. It's not just right. Oh, that was that thing that people drank back then. It was like no, it. It was a whole phenomenon and it was a big enough phenomenon that somebody wrote a joke about it in a musical theater script. (laughs) Yes. And like, that's such a great example of, you know, doing the the deep work and the deep research like this sort of gets a bad rap as being boring or, you know, sometimes even a waste of time because the impact of it or the outcome of it isn't tangible. It's not obvious. It's not something that you can like really point to. But it's those subtle shades of the the really brilliant work that you see where you know. I mean, for me, one of the first people that comes to mind is Rob McClure in Chaplin. I'm like one of the five people who saw Chaplin. But his work in that was, I mean, he must have done years of deep research work on that because so detailed, so specific. I heard a story about there were a lot of like little film clips of uh, him as Charlie Chaplin in the show. And Charlie Chaplin's family came up to him afterward and was like, where did you guys find that footage? I've never seen that of, you know, of Charlie before. And he was like, no, it was me. But they were so convinced that it was Charlie Chaplin because of the way he moved and like all of that research that he had done. And, you know, it's, it really has impact. But what I love about what you're doing is instead of just saying, no, the work's not boring, it's important, do it. You're saying, let's make it something collaborative because you're a collaborative artist and that's how you like to work. So rather than sending you off to go to the library on your own and do this research that you find boring, let me help you and we'll make it interesting and fun and collaborative together. I think that's so amazing. Thank you. I have a lot of fun with it. And I am, I'm blessed with clients that you know do believe in the work, but don't necessarily have the time and energy to do it themselves. And I'm happy to, to fill that gap because the library is my happy place. And I fully realize that some people have a strong aversion to the library. Fair. Especially if it's not something that you feel like you're great at as far as like, you know, going to the library and doing that type of research and like, you're not interested in cultivating that skill, then that's why something like this exists. A hundred percent. Like I would not recommend anyone that doesn't actually like doing this work, putting in the time and energy to learn how to find things in the library. All my love to the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts, but like you gotta you gotta learn your way around. And thank God for the librarians who are always there to help. I was doing a show last year and was doing my own dramaturgy research, and um, it was Rogers and Hart's 1942 by Jupiter, which, you know, not not a show most people know. No, I've never heard of it. It basically is the story of the the Amazon women who get invaded by the Greeks and musical comedy hilarity ensues as only it can in, you know, those types of <laughs> of musicals from the 30s and 40s. Um, I played Hippolyta, uh, the queen of the Amazons, which was amazing. But anyway, you know, I wanted to do my own research and I went to the library and they had the original 1942 prompt book from the show. 
like a physical hardbound book that I could flip through with my little, they give you these little um, sticks so you can carefully turn the page (laughs) so you don't ruin the spine. And I just, I had so many questions. I was like, whose was this? Where did it come from? You know, this is incredible. And it just made the whole experience more real to me. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't just the show that we were doing. It was, it was something, you know, someone else created and put time and energy into, and we should put that same time and energy into interpreting it because it deserves that. Yeah. I love hearing your passion for it and how fulfilling this work is to you and how deep and meaningful it is because it definitely, it just serves as such a great reminder how meaningful and creative this type of work can be. And, you know, what a great opportunity it is to, to work with someone else on this work to deepen your sense of the character for whatever show that you're doing. So I just think this is such an incredible offering and I'm, I'm so glad that you do it. Thanks. I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes. Yes. And I will definitely be linking the website for Go Beyond the Script and your blog in the show notes. So anyone who's interested can learn a little bit more. But before we wrap up today, I'd love to just touch back on a point that you made earlier. I don't think you used this term, but basically you sort of described an appreciation of the cross-pollination between all of the different things that you currently do and that you have done. And I would just love to hear a little bit from you about, you know, ways that your skills from other industries, other elements of your life have played into, you know, what you're doing now. Mm, yes. I, I think about that a lot. I sort of view my life as a Venn diagram and I kind of have my, my political science lawyer life and skills on, on one side mm-hmm. and then my creative world on the other. And then, you know, what I do now is somewhere in, in the overlap of all of my favorite things. Yes. So the biggest takeaway for me when I left the practice of law was something someone else actually said to me. Uh, when I was kind of feeling a little worried about walking away. And that was, you get to take everything with you. Yep. I might not be practicing law, but I research on a daily basis, which was greatly improved by my practice. I I write, Mm -hmm. which was the majority of what I was doing as a lawyer. I analyze and connect the dots, which was basically you know, what I was trained uh, to do all through law school, I'm just connecting dots in areas I want to connect dots in that I actually enjoy now. Right. Whereas before it was more like, okay, here's the case that you're working on, you know, go research and find us analogous cases that help our facts. Now it's, oh, you're doing, you know, Smitty in, in how to succeed, you know, how do we give you context and help you connect the dots so that whatever we pro- I provide for you, you can then take and have it be actionable in your, in your work. Right. And when you were involved in law, how do you feel like your skills that you had cultivated as a singer and an artist and an actor, how do you feel like those skills 
helped you in law? I mean, the first was just a funny story of being at a conference with my boss and having to teach him how to speak into a microphone on the fly with so that everybody could, could understand him. Um, and then, yeah, I think the the other is more, um, you know, the flexibility that that creatives have, the sort of yes and mentality, yes. the need to think outside the box and figure out as you go along, you know, the storytelling aspect. Yeah. Every case is a different story. And my, my job was to tell the story from my client's perspective, you know, stating the truthful facts and explaining how the law says that, you know, they should ultimately prevail in whatever the problem was. Right. And I think at the time, I didn't really realize how much of my creative skills I was using until I was able to step back and go, oh, that's where that came from. Or, you know, right. that's how I was able, you know, to be successful in, in this area of my practice. But we definitely need creative people in every industry. Yeah. And it's such, it's such a hard, hard thing to, to teach people that I think in this moment, you know, that is a skill that actors should really embrace, you know, now more than ever, we need to innovate, we need to, to think outside the box, we need to be okay with mess while still working towards a final product. What better analogy is the rehearsal process to opening night? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's interesting to hear you say that you, didn't really recognize how you were utilizing your creative skills in law when you were practicing it. Because I think that one struggle that actors and artists have is recognizing their unique skills as unique because we so often surround ourselves with creative people that we think that, oh, everyone's just that way. So that even when you were doing something completely different than being an actor, you still couldn't necessarily recognize those skills as being unique. It took stepping away from all of that and looking back on it to realize that you were utilizing those very same skill sets that made you want to pursue this career more wholeheartedly. And I think that that's really fascinating to see that even in the moment when you were applying those skill sets somewhere else, you still couldn't recognize them as unique. But I also love what you said about that they're super important, especially right now, and that we all really do need to wake up to that and recognize that. Yes, 100%. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation today. I absolutely loved hearing your perspective. I think what you're doing with Go Beyond the Script is fascinating and important. And, you know, for any artists who do take you up on what you have to offer, I think they will find their work is so rich and deep and that there are actually so many more creative options available to them after working with you. And I just, I absolutely love what you do. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Caitlin's passion for history, research, and storytelling is so amazing to me. She is such a great example of someone whose path makes so much sense looking back on it, and her journey shows us that all of our skills are valuable in everything that we do. 
hope that you enjoyed today's episode and that wherever you are, you are safe and well. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Lily Torre, and this has been The Dreaded Question.